We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 334 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hilton, and I've got Rafa Albemui with me today. And Rafa, honestly, I thought we would have to be a bit negative in the first half yesterday, but a 2-1 comeback victory means we can keep those good vibes going like you and I like to do so often, because Barcelona, Rafa, have won four games across all competitions for the first time since February slash March of last season, that being 2021. So it has been one full year since Kulet could say, hmm, Barcelona have won a few games in a row, haven't they? It feels like they're finally on the winning snide. No, I first of all, thank you once again for having me. Like you too as well. I like to lo- look at the glass half full. It seemed like like since it was for, since forever that Barcelona like went on a nice winning streak. Like the past few months, even with Xavi, it just seemed like when we finally thought we were like taking off, it was like <laughs> like the plane just like kind of like had to go back to the to the to the ground and i was like oh my god i thought we finally like were above ground flying high and for once i during the first half i mean well i know we'll get to it but that game in my opinion during the first half if we would have been more clinical like we were against napoli in italy i think we could have scored like four or five goals it's just that sadly we weren't as clinical especially frankie the young wasn't as clinical as he was against napoli but I think we created a lot of good, clear goal-scoring opportunities. It was just that we weren't as clinical as, sadly, we've been recently. So a game that could have been, I don't want to say over, but close to over in the first half was, well, not wide open. We were behind. We were losing that game going yeah. into halftime. So. Yeah, there was so many what-ifs that I was starting to create in that first half just to say, why would this be game? How would this game be different? that kind of stuff. And, you know, I start always with the left wing going, well, what if Ansu Fati was on the left wing instead of Gabi in that situation? Barca's up 3 nothing at halftime, honestly, or 3-1 if you still give Fidel the goal that he, I think, deserved in that game. And then if Torres starts and isn't rotated, because clearly Ferran Torres rotated for physical, mental reasons, whatever it is, he's going to be needed against Galatasaray on Thursday, or he'll start likely that game. So I understood why he started on the bench. That means Gabi's playing left wing for that rotation. And yeah, I felt like in that first half that, you know, Barca, it could have been any kind of result and it would have made sense. And I actually do want to upfront, I don't know how many Elche or English speaking Elche fans there are in total, but I don't know how many Elche fans there are. I always, now I think going on as long as they've been back in the first division, I always 
put them in my preseason predictions to be relegated. And the last few seasons, not only do they not get relegated, but they wind up finishing eh, six to eight to 10 points clear of relegation. And again, I did that this season. And I look up and down the roster and I go, well, I mean, I don't really get it. Edgar Badia, the former Espanol man, only plays well against Barcelona. So I figure he doesn't play well. He doesn't play well enough against everybody else that they must get sent down. But Elche were very compact and they kind of forced Xavi and Barcelona to figure them out with more talent. And that for me is kind of the way that I would summarize the game is that Barcelona were able to utilize their superior talent over the course of 90 minutes. And they had to figure out and kind of break through that puzzle, you know, kind of like an escape room in the Valencian community. Because yesterday they recorded eight big chances against Elche, the most big chance they've had in a single match since the 2nd of December 2020 against Ferenvaros. And because yesterday, with those eight big chances, they missed six of them. And as you mentioned, if they convert on those, I mean, they win by six. Because the expected goals even was 4.20 or 420. Yeah, ha, 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 nice. 420 against 0.92 for Elche. And shots in that regard were 20 to 13. And Barcelona, were the shots they were getting on that, especially in the second half when Ferran Torres. We'll talk about that and the changes. But yeah, and then the big other big picture here is that seven wins and four draws for Barcelona in the Liga since that loss to Real Betis in early December. And it's been all Xavi, all Barcelona, and all of a very, very deep team. And I think the last point about this comeback before we start talking about tactics is that I was calm throughout this comeback because for the first time, and this is going back to the whole Messi thing, it's a reminder to me in these games that Messi, this is his first year being gone for a player that has been in my life since this third or fourth year I was supporting FC Barcelona. So there are so many times, basically starting in what, 07-ish, whenever Barcelona were down in the game, you go, okay, Messi, <laughs> you know, can you be the guy, please? Can you figure this out for us? Even during the days of, at the end of the Ronaldinho era, it, before that full passing of the torch happened, by 09, it was, yeah, Messi, not only can you save us, but he, he's going to save us and he will save us. And for Barca yesterday, I, this is not a real term. This is not a real term, but it's a non-heliocentric comeback, if that makes any sense. We are not just relying on one player to help the team come back. It felt like the weight of the world was on Dembele in the first half, but by the second, you're like, no, it's any number of players are going to be the reason Barcelona come back in this game. You know, one thing, Elche do have an official English Twitter account, but it only has 2,175 followers, so I don't think we're going to get that much Elche English-speaking uh, fans right now. So I, I completely agree with what you said. Like it's, it's obvious that Elche are going to be in the top tier of teams that are probably going down to the second division. I agree. And it was a game that I like, I listened to the press conference the day before and their head coach was basically saying like, Hey, it's Barcelona. They're flying high. We're just going to defend and then try to hit them on a counter, which is exactly what they did. But even then during the first half, I think it I would, if the, the game would have ended in a draw or thank God, it didn't happen, a loss, I would have been mad at the result, not at how we played. Because like you said, we played, in my opinion, we played great. We did what we needed to do as a collective. We created a bunch of clear goal-scoring opportunities. Then it's just down to the individual player to put a good chance away. Frank, Frankie didn't do that. Obama Young wasn't as sharp as, we see, as we've seen him throughout the last few games. Dembele, it's kind of, it's weird because every time he gets the ball, you get that sense that 
something's going to happen. He's going to create something. He might not end up on the score sheet as uh, the guy that provided the assist or the one that scored the goal, but he was part of the play that ended up in a goal or in a goal-scoring opportunity. And I think Dembele was amazing during that first half. Um, and then Gabi, the Gabi thing, that was that caught me a little bit by surprise because I thought that playing Gabi as a left winger or as a false left winger was out of necessity when we didn't have our full attacking options available. And now, Bar and Sufati, we do. So it caught me by surprise that Xavi left both Adama and Ferran on the bench because he could have started Adama on the right and Dembele on the left if he wanted to give Ferran a, a breather or Adama a breather and put Ferran, even though Ferran hasn't gotten a breather in ages. I agree. So it, it, it caught me by surprise, and I'm no fan. I, I'm old school, Dan. I'm sorry. I like wingers to play as wingers. I like center forwards to play as center forwards and such and such. I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I'm old man yelling at the cloud. I don't like this. Oh, let's play our center mid as a center back and get and, uh, and this and that. No, no, no. Like Gabi is amazing as a midfielder. Yeah, he could play as a left winger if need be, but this, in my opinion, wasn't that occasion. So it, it, it caught me by surprise a little bit. Hopefully, it doesn't happen again because it doesn't do any favors to Gabi at the end of the day because. Where he's great, where he's amazing is as an interior, not as a left winger. So, again, I know he was saving them for Galatasaray, but what is more important to you? Away Elche, La Liga points, three points, or Galatasaray at home? Like, in my opinion, this was the more important match than the one on Thursday. So, I think if you're going to rotate, if you're going to put Gavi as a left winger, I think you might as well put him at the Camp Nou against Galatasaray than away against Elche. Well, I think the only argument I would make on Xavi's behalf is that with the form that Dembele has been in recently, the idea is that Dembele could have won that match in the first 45 minutes on his own, in particular, even the first true. 15 minutes. He had a shot 10 minutes in. He was able to take on players, create something for Obama Yang. And then there was that really nice ball from Ter Stegen, found Dembele on this full-length 60-yard pass. 10 minutes after that, that leads to the Alba shot. And for Dembele... I think, again, I understand the reasoning that if you're going to start Dembele, you almost can start Gabi because of the attention that Dembele attracts from that back line of Elche, knowing, Xavi knowing that Elche were going to play a 4-5-1. And you're right that when it came to Gabi, it had nothing to do with Gabi. His job was a lot of different things. The heat map shows that not only was he not part of the passing buildup, but he was completely isolated on the left wing. But he had to stay high and wide to stretch that LJ back line. So to make sure that LJ weren't able to strong side Dembele side, which they still attempted to do, Gabi still had to keep his positioning. And it's not even that he's ineffective there. He was ineffective because Aubameyang and Gabi had no relationship because Aubameyang was being tasked. To, I mean, that's how you break down a medium or low block is that you bring your, your number nine into the middle of the field to create that numerical advantage in the middle of the field and Obama Yang's first touch just isn't good enough for that kind of scenario I also thought Dembele didn't really bring his best game either so as I said like this could have been over at halftime if Dembele had decided to, to bring his bag that he brought against the last few in the last few matches right like if we actually had peaked Dembele in that way 
But and the other argument, too, is that you kind of have to do that in that situation because Memphis isn't starting fit yet. Because Memphis is the one, actually, who starts over Farron. Like, Farron Torres still needed a rest, both physical and mental. But Memphis wasn't ready physically to start. And clearly, two goals in two games, looking just fine. That being Memphis to buy. And Ansu is out injured, of course. And that's what kind of leaves Gabi as being the odd man out in that situation where you kind of put him on an island. And he struggles. And that's why in the second half, everything was able to change. And I think, again, that Xavi only allowed it when I say only allowed, he made changes at halftime. Like, Gabi was taken off at halftime, and if you're 17 years old and you're taken off at halftime, you're like, oh, my career's over. But all those, all things considered, it's Gabi playing out of position, and I think it was totally understandable why it happened. I don't think anything is going to happen with Gabi moving forward. And, and then with Torres being the absolute right move coming off the bench, I mean, yeah, of course, I think anybody would have done that. But even on that left wing, it was a play into those pockets of space and got even better when Memphis comes on because Memphis would drop in and this actually wasn't just those guys. It's really interesting getting into all the different changes of the second half. Are you ready for these, Rafa? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm ready. All right. So some of the things I saw here, for Araujo, who I did actually not mention in my five headlines at all, his positioning and his ability on the ball changed things in the second half of Barca. His progressive movements were so much deeper into the the, the final third or into Elche's half of the field. And he was much more willing to carry the ball into space. And you could tell that that is a direct, direct instruction from Xavi at halftime. And Busquets, in the first half in particular, with Elche, they always had either a striker or one of those in, the, in, in that midfield line to be man-marking uh, Busquets. So Busquets, as we know, when he drops in to create a back three, when both Alba and Alves are trying to push in or even invert in front of him, it still leaves one player, one really important essential player in the buildup farther back of the field. And that means LJ gets to bring their line of confrontation with their block higher up the field. But having Araujo able to progress into that space, meaning you can guard Busquets all you want, but we're still going to get the ball into the midfield with Araujo, who you want to try to take the ball off of. And he is going to find the balls because he did yesterday find the balls out wide to the wing, especially when Adama Traore came on, because Adama, unlike Dembele, you know exactly where Adama's going to be. There's no secrets. The opponent knows where he's going to be. The Barca players know who he's going to be. And in this case, Barca players know exactly where Adama wanted to start and receive the ball. Kind of helped with Araujo getting comfortable in the buildup. And then to the positioning of De Jong, he was much closer to the Elche back line. In the first half, he would again drop a little bit deeper because if Busquets is going to drop to the back three, that means Young had to take up a central, a completely central role. But 
once Araujo was dribbling into that space and creating th- more third-man runs for Barca to progress up the field, that meant De Jong was able to push his positioning up farther. And what does that do? That creates a higher line of confrontation, which puts much more stress on that back line for Elche, who now are contending with Ferran Torres and Memphis. And Memphis, who was dropping in, Pedri was actually almost going into that space that Gabi was occupying on that left wing and stretching out wide. And Alba also brought his positioning farther up and wider out. He was much more at home in that first half. And so all those little tweaks and changes to players' positioning just created all that space for Ferran Torres and Memphis up top. And for Elche, who were able to put some pressure, not even, they were it was soft pressure. They were forcing Barca to break them down through the middle. And Barca said, we don't have to. We're going to use the entire width of the field. And we're going to, again, make this game vertical and go from our back line to our front line. And we're going to make this thing wide. And we're going to almost bypass the midfield completely. And that's how you break down a low block. And I just was so excited at all those little tiny things. There's all those changes and tweaks to player positioning that created this thing. It wasn't just one player coming on those halftime changes. It was everything that was done to, to build that success for Barca in the second half. Okay, I'm done. Rafa, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> Let's see what you no. got. Thing is, I agree with everything that you said. I, I, I just wanted to focus a little bit on Ferran because... It's kind of funny. I, I think I'm going to kind of repeat myself after we talked about the first leg of the Napoli-Barcelona uh, game where Ferran could have ended up with four goals if he was a little bit more clinical. And I remember one of the comments that, uh, on, on the video was like, yeah, but how can you forget about the finishing part? Like, you can't. And it's like, I know that. <laughs> I'm just saying that strikers go through these phases whether Ferran long-term will end up being a clinical goal scorer, that remains to be seen. Hopefully he does, because that'll be great for Barcelona. But right now, again, it's like the, the analogy. It's like a bottle of ketchup. Right now, you're hitting it, and ketchup is not going out. But you know that if you keep hitting it, ketchup is eventually going to come out, and it's going to come pouring down. So that's what happens with goal scores. Like, Ferran right now, what you can judge him on, apart from the finishing, I know, I know, don't like, don't shoot the messenger, I know, on the comments, but he's where he needs to be all the time. Like, he's putting himself in the right spots to be in a clear goal scoring opportunity. Because once again, Ferran against Elche, just like in the first leg against Napoli, Ferran scored one goal. He could have left Elche with a hat trick easily because he was putting himself he knew how to read the play when the play was on the right when the play was on the left when he was playing on the left when he was playing in the middle when this player was going this way when this player was going this way he knew where to go so that he would be in a whether to pass the ball or to shoot and it was a mixture of Ferrara again not being clinical and Badia becoming the reincarnation of Yashin and playing the game of the season uh, for him. So it was a mixture of both. And again, I just, I know I like, sometimes I tend like within myself, I see Ferran miss and I'm like, Oh my God, like we paid 55 million for him. But then I, I need to remind myself to not be, we say that in Spanish, like Amarillista, like sensationalist, because just to put my emotions aside, because, I, like every Barcelona fan, would want to see Ferran score five goals each game. And I think he has had the opportunities for that in a lot of the, a lot of games. 
And I need to put, and I urge everyone, especially the ones in the comments of this great YouTube channel, to put their emotions aside a little bit and kind of like analyze everything as raw as possible. Analyze Ferran as cold as you can, because if you do, I think you'll find that he had a great game. Once those chances start going in, I think we could be seeing something special. And that's when everyone will be jumping on the bandwagon. Oh, Ferran this, Ferran that. He's playing great now. No, he's been playing really well since he arrived at Barcelona. Like, Ferran is capable of scoring. We saw it his first goal with Barcelona. A golazo against Athletic Club. Like, we know what he's capable of. It's just that it happens for strikers. You just go on a bad streak where nothing is going in for the most part. But he's been, he's putting himself in great positions to score. So, please, I just, I just try to look at the glass half full. I urge everyone, just look at that and let's not, like, go for the jugular of Ferran because... Let's try and look at all, like, out of 10 things, I think he's doing great, like, eight or even nine. I know that that one that he's not doing great is pretty important for a striker. I get that. But, like, let's try and be a little bit calm with Ferran. Because in my opinion, once again, he had a great game. Yeah, there's nothing to indicate that those goals won't eventually happen. I mean, even the the hat, clinical hat trick that he could have had yesterday – Padilla got the foot out. I mean, the, the, especially the second one. That was perfectly where it needed to be. It was just great goalkeeping with Padilla getting big. He has three goals and three assists in 10 matches for Barcelona. And we're calling that him insanely missing. He's going to have double-digit goals before in six months, before the season ends, or five months, depending on, you know, because obviously they're not going to go that late. But So in five months, he'll have double-digit goals for FC Barcelona. Memphis, remember, is still the leading goal scorer for FC Barcelona. He's at double digits. He's close to, I mean, he missed almost two months. And so our expectations for these players are, I mean, numbers-wise, we're starting to forget that other players who are, quote-unquote, all these time goal scoring, that's kind of going back to this, the heliocentric thing I said, that Ferran Torres was not bought. Yes, he was bought for 55 million euros. But how do you quantify what he's expected to do, what his job is to do? Because right now, Barcelona, as I said, have seven wins and four draws in their last 11 matches. And Ferran Torres has played in every single one of those and started all but one of those. And Barcelona have not lost yet. So did Barcelona maybe take a portion of that 55 million euros to buy a player that would help them win as a team, as a unit? Because again, if you're buying, and this goes into the Holland thing, I'm not, I don't want to do this. I, I'm, I'm saying, Rafa, we're not doing the Holland thing, okay? <laughs> but <laughs> the, the, yeah, the fire truck that just went by, that was for that. Look, this is your Holland warning. So I'm not doing the Holland thing, but if Barcelona were to shell out 120 million euros for Holland, it becomes a heliocentric offense where that man has got to be the guy who puts the ball in the back of the net. That guy needs to score 25 or 22, whatever it may be, somewhere in that range, 22 to 28 goals per game, per year. That is what that man is expected to do. But 55 million for a winger slash number nine who's 21 years old, yeah, maybe he should have only been bought for 35 to 45, but based on the January market, I understand where I'm adding an extra 10 to 15 million by having to purchase a player in January. But Barcelona were purchasing those four players. Well, yet obviously the other three were freeze, but he they purchased Ferran Torres so that they had and had a player that they could bring in to be 
become part of a winning formula so they could finish top four to be in the Champions League to keep this thing going. And so far, if they're able to make the Champions League, if they're able to finish top, not even four, but three or two with their pace right now to potentially uh, catch Sevilla, if they go far, I mean, not even far, but if they do win the Europa League, some, I mean, it'll be actually not that, <laughs> how do I say it? Not that difficult, but if Barcelona want to play like this, they can win the Europa League, but you also need luck in those competitions I want to throw out there. Okay, next talking point about this Elche match is something, again, that I missed yesterday. So yesterday, Barcelona had 44 of their 86 recoveries in Elche's half of the field. More than 50%, I'm no mathematician, but it's more than 50% of them getting the ball back happened in Elche's half of the field, which is very, very different than those similar numbers that we saw during Valverde's tenure, especially, and also during Kuman's time. The three players who recovered the most balls yesterday. Did you see this stat, Rafa? Or can you guess why I bring this up? Uh, I don't know. The midfielders, Frankie, Pedri, Busquets. See, that's what you'd think. But yes, Busquets was 13, Alba was 16, and Pique was 9. So once again, for now, the third, the three of the last four games, those three were top three in ball recoveries for FC Barcelona once again. And I love the fact, and this is what a veteran's supposed to do. I love the fact that in my match reviews and the headlines yesterday, for Alba, it was where the change that was made, as I said, where he was playing much more at home in the first half, and then you'd get farther forward where he belongs in the second half, and he's just racking up the offensive stats, and again, defensively did his job in the first half as well. But as far as Busquets and Piquet, I didn't really mention them yesterday, and again, that's a great thing. Because their jobs are just to be the captains and be the guys that are setting the ship and making sure that this team makes the changes necessary to win these games and doing the the unselfish job of recovering as many balls as you possibly can and allow Dembele to, unlike Dembele in previous weeks, lose the ball in unfortunate positions and make sure you're recovering for him. And the last thing I would say about this Elche match, again, I don't, this is going to be one of our shorter quote unquote match review podcasts about Elche, is all the all those little moments in that game. Because as much as I said that Barcelona always felt like the better team, because I, I think they did, LJ had such a good game plan where they, I mean, the handball uh, against LJ at the end that gave Barcelona the win, Memphis converts the PK. Now the PK itself, absolutely no doubter. That I mean, I <laughs> yeah. Is this his second, right? This is his second PK this season that I'm trying to think back. I don't know many penalties that I've seen that are that clean. That's his second one this year. Memphis should probably be the penalty kick taker for FC Barcelona. Hot take there if he's on the field. And I think he is. I think everyone understands that that's the hierarchy. But before that, there was a ball that was cleared off the line that credit so much to Badia for always being there, for getting a, I think it was a hand on the first one for Dembele that was supposed to be a shot, a chip in. And then Diego Gonzalez saving a goal off the line from Frankie de Jong in what was Barcelona's best transition of the game. Elche were just difficult to break down. And there were so many moments where Elche, yes, they got the one goal for Fidel, but they could have got a second one. And if not for Ter Stegen, who I know that save at the end was offside, sure, but it was at the very, very end. But Ter Stegen could have done more on the goal, but I felt like Ter Stegen did enough yesterday. And I think there's, for me, I'll let you give the full defense, but this is a defense of, of Ter Stegen. His distribution has not been great. But his distribution yesterday was very good. And he was able to, yesterday, make some big saves. He made some big saves that kept Barcelona in the match. And yeah, he could have done more on the goal, but Barca still came away with a 2-1 victory. And, and I think it's a good thing for Ter Stegen. No, I agree. It is, it's gotten to a point with Ter Stegen that it, it pains me 
So talk about him because he's such a great person. I think he's such a great captain as well, even though he's not technically one of the four captains. So it's it's ah, it's like a like it's like a dad when like you gotta like tell your kid that he didn't do something well, but he's a good kid. So you kind of feel like you don't want to do it in a way. And t- with Terry Stegen, I agree with you. Like in the goal, in my opinion, that's a goal that especially after seeing the replays, a top, top goalkeeper has to save that. And then, but I said it on my stream, on my, uh, on my stream that I'll give credit where credit is due. If I got to criticize him, I'll criticize him respectfully. And if I got to give him kudos, I'll give him kudos. The same way that I said in the goal, I thought he should have saved that. Like a top class goalkeeper has to save that. Then in the second half, he kept us in the game it because one of those saves was just out of pure reflex. And it was amazing that I don't know how that didn't go in, but the, it was the one because of an, um, the one that was heading oh, to the top, right? The one that was heading exactly, underneath yes. the crossbar. Yeah. It was a top class save by that. A top class goalkeeper should do. Mm-hmm. And he did exactly that. So I'm torn because you, for Barcelona to opt for every major title, you need a top, top goalkeeper. Like right now, in my opinion, the best goalkeeper in the world is Thibaut Courtois, like in current form right now. And you see how throughout the entire league, Courtois has given Real Madrid God knows how many points. Like if it wasn't for Courtois, there would still be a close fight for the league. If they right. have a cushion yep, on Sevilla, right. it's mainly because of Courtois. And Against PSG, he saved them against PSG. So what I'm trying to get at is that it pains me because at during the summer, I think that Barcelona should seriously look at how they're going to handle Ter Stegen in a way that I'm not saying we need to like buy a $50 million euro goalkeeper right now, but seriously look at how to approach having a better backup, whether it's like a young promise, bringing back uh, Iñaki Peña from Galatasaray. I don't have the answer, but I think there's a, we need to assess Ter Stegen that sadly he might never be what he was. So that that's what worries me a little bit because you see this, this, this Ter Stegen that you get something that gives you a little bit of hope and you're like, oh, are we going to see like the, is Ter Stegen back? And then you see something that's like, ah, I don't know. And for Barcelona to opt for every major title, you need a goalkeeper that's always here. And I don't know. Hopefully I'm wrong and I'll admit it if I'm wrong, but I don't know if sadly Ter Stegen will ever be that top, top, top goalkeeper that he once was. Yeah, I, I actually doubt that. I, I think there are a number of reasons why, especially for goalkeepers, you don't show any weakness. You don't speak of weakness. You don't speak of any issues or whatever because goalkeepers are the ones that have to be as mentally sharp as anybody else on the field because the times when they have to come up big, they only have one shot and they got to get it right or else <laughs> their team is losing and they're taking the ball to the back of the net. In Ter Stegen's case, I think it could be a combination of the knee trouble that has been coming up over the last few years. It could be the shoulder Injuries that have been coming up over the last few years. It could be what happened with the German national team that could have stripped him of more confidence than we think it did. It did. Uh, these German national team players in particular take great pride in being a, a member of that team. 
the German national team is one that is, you know, th- those guys are dedicated to that cause. And that's why the German national team so often says for those dual internationals, because there are a ton of German dual internationals, they say, hey, you know, if you don't want to be here, if th- this isn't completely you, we don't we don't want you. And they tell them to go elsewhere. And so Ter Sagan not being able to unseat Neuer might have affected his confidence, as well as the fact that, I mean, we don't know how much he does read stuff, right? Dembele clearly had, was shaken a bit by reading stuff. And for Ter Stegen, I think if he were to read stuff over the last season or two, it wouldn't have been the right thing. And I think there are stories that have also popped up too about potentially how he wasn't necessarily getting along well. There was rumors that it was messy. There was rumors that it was some of the other, uh, we'll say top Catalan figures in that dressing room. And I wonder if he is taken uh, less of a vocal role in the team or whatever. Like, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. But when all of those memoirs came out, I mean, PK is going to obviously the, the, the millions of euros that PK is going to make on book sales over the next uh, over the next 30 years. Right. <laughs> so on PK's fourth or fifth book, when he finally gets into some of the other teammates and he starts to talk about Ter Stegen, I'm interested to hear what others will say about Ter Stegen's time at Barcelona. I'm interested to hear what Ter, if he ever admits anything. I'm interested to hear what Ter Stegen has to say about his time at Barcelona. I think that's just one example of a player we don't know the full story about. Whether it's injury again, whether it's injury that he doesn't reveal to let opponents know that he's not as great as he, he should be. But you're right. How does the club deal with that? Regardless of what's happening, regardless of all those excuses, I mean, I'm not sure if bringing a backup. I mean, yes, Neto. I mean, Neto should have been the answer, but Neto was an accounting mistake. Remember that he was swapped for Jasper Sillison, which was actually, yeah. I think, a better backup. No offense to Neto, but Neto has always been actually a number. He's supposed to be, or Juventus sold him as a 1B, but he wasn't really a 1B. Even in Valencia, he was kind of a 1B at Valencia, but you really, if you're the, I don't know, you should be the one at Valencia. You should be the <laughs> overwhelming favorite at Valencia yeah. to be the backup at Barcelona. I mean, that's what Pinto was all that time ago. He was the guy for Celta de Vigo, and then he becomes his consummate backup. But a reminder that when Pinto was was being asked to get off the mixer and get off his records and come and be Barcelona's goalkeeper, that he could show up in those big moments. So yeah, I think it's more competition for Ter Stegen. And I don't know how many guys you can bring in for any amount of money because now it becomes a money issue. Like how much money is there to spend? Do you have, I, I think Neto again is worth 15 million, but he, he cost 35 because of the accounting question marks, if we will. But I think a backup goalkeeper or, or a 1B or a, how do I say this, or a 2A, that goalkeeper is probably going to cost you 15 to 20. And I just don't think that should be in Barcelona's budget. And so now you're relying on Inaki Pena, who so far has actually been pretty good at Galatasaray. They have turned things around with Dominic Torrent. And uh, this is, I'm not giving you any Barcelona Galatasaray preview. Look on the YouTube channel for that later in the week. But as far as Galatasaray, Inaki Pena is probably going to get the most work against Barcelona. He's going to be the guy that is going to matter in that match for Galatasaray. And maybe, yeah, maybe he can take that step up with consistent minutes where he's able to come back and Xavi says, hey, this guy, he looks the same, but he's got a lot more confidence. And we saw that he could do this thing and have success for a I'd say a, a big team. They're they're thirteenth or twelfth or whatever in the Turkish division, but they've got a huge stadium, a huge fan base, and a lot of pressure on Inaki Pena. So he might be the guy. Hopefully he is. That's what I wanted to get at that I the the, the, the thing that's like puts a little like wrench to everything. It's it's the economical situation because if we are to believe what we've been reading, everything that we're gonna get is gonna be on a free transfer. And all the money, if there's any amount of money, is going to go towards one specific guy if he ends up coming, which 
you don't want me to talk about him, so I'm not going to name him. So you have your time. Yeah. Not, it doesn't seem possible. I, that, that's the problem that if we do have money, which we do, we're not going to spend it on a goalkeeper. So it, 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 it's, it's a difficult situation, and it's a painful one because he seems like – obviously, I don't know him personally, but he seems like such a, like a mature person and a respectful person that it's like it, it, it pains you to – like obviously respectfully, but to criticize him, it it, it, it sucks because you don't want to do it. But if you're going to analyze it like, like 50, 50, it's, it's, you got to say it, but it's, 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 it's an uncomfortable situation that hopefully it gets better, but there's no clear answer. So, yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing to wrap up this little point here about Elche, the whole point of this comeback is that it puts Barcelona in a better spot. They're in third. They're not comfortably in third, obviously, with Real Betis and Atletico uh, Madrid just breathing down their necks. But watching that Betis-Atleti match, especially having seen Barca against Atleti a few weeks ago, which obviously was a complete dredging. And then remember, the last time that Barcelona lost the match was in December to Real Betis. So they don't get them again, but they put themselves at a good spot in the table. And these are the kind of matches that are going to continue to pop up, but be the difference between Barca even a month ago and the Barca that they are now, that are making these into victories and are making these into three points because you're starting to do math now down the stretch here. As as unimportant as, we'll say, every match mattered in the beginning, Osasuna at home next Sunday is not a guaranteed victory coming off Galatasaray at home, but now you've got two matches at home, which is a good thing for Galatasaray, regardless of what happens. And then Osasuna... You're going to have to take care of business. Sure, you're doing it without... I think Nico Gonzalez is the only one who's suspended for that. And then it's Galatasaray in Turkey on the road the following Thursday, which leads into Sunday against Real Madrid. Then you're off for like two weeks, which is a, a great thing for Barca because I actually usually think that the FIFA virus and all those worries about Barca players all playing international football, it usually never works out well for Barca. But with the number, not say limited number, but there's less n- a number of internationals on Barca's team now than there have been in the past, depending on if Gabi and Pedri are both selected to Spain. But then it's at home against Sevilla on April 3rd. And you circle that match and say, against Real Madrid and Sevilla, if you get four points there, you basically finish top three. Because no disrespect to Levante, Cadiz, I mean, that's Real Sociedad, but Raya Vallecano in their free fall, Mallorca, Real Betis again, so I did misspeak, they are playing them once again, Real Betis, Celta de Vigo, Hadafe, Villarreal. So of those, what, five of those games are very winnable or ones that you should win at this point. And then, yeah, you might have some difficulty in the Basque country at Real Sociedad. You might have some difficulty in Seville against Real Betis. But by and large, there's some victories there on the table for Barcelona. And then you just have to get through Real Madrid and Sevilla. And I bring this up now because it's March 7th. The season ends March 22nd in the, uh, May 22nd in the Liga. But we're already talking about that final stretch. And there is this magic number coming up, right? That four more victories in the Liga. And you, and I mean, as long as some of the other ones are draws, like you're almost there. And two of the next three matches are against Bar- or Real Madrid and Sevilla. The three, the three, in my opinion, the three toughest away games that we have left are obviously a Clásico against the Real Sociedad de Ganoeta and against Betis and uh, in el Benito Villamarín. So those are the three left. Hopefully we get nine, nine out of nine. That's hopefully being super optimistic. But at the end of the day, I think 
the roughest patch. Like I saw a stat that said that out of Xavi's 14 league games, Barcelona have won nine of those 14. And out of those 14, nine have been away. Out of those 14 league games, only five have been played at the camp. No, that's crazy. And how good we've done that we've won so many games of those 14 league games and only five of them, five of those 14 games have been on the camp. No. So that's been a huge uh, handicap for Barcelona. And we've managed to go through that storm basically and come out of it basically like, well, so this final stretch, if we manage to get, okay, let's be realistic six out of nine, because anything can happen in a class go, I honestly at the camp no, depending on how hopefully FIFA virus we doesn't affect us. But you would expect Barcelona, if there's not any major injuries and whatnot, to beat Sevilla at the camp. No. Especially given how much Argentinian players Sevilla have that are gonna yeah. have to go to South America. Important players. Montiel, Ocampos, El Papu, who's injured right now. The left back, uh, Garay. No, no, not Garay. I forgot his name. The left back. Um, Acuna? Acuna. Yeah, Acuna. Um, so they do have a bunch of South American players that are going to have to go over there, play. Even though Argentina's already qualified, but still, they're, they keep playing and putting their best 11 Messi's back for them. So you... They're going to try and use those as prep for the World Cup and try to like fine-tune things. So they're not reserving players, same as Brazil. They're still like tweaking in here and there. So I think Sevilla could have way more like tiredness in their squad than we do. So honestly, I, I think we should beat Sevilla at home, which is basically what we do more often than not. Obviously, when we go to the Sanchez Fisuan is a whole different story. So what I'm trying to get at wrapping things up with this point is that I think the final stretch is bar those three difficult away games that we do have against Madrid, Real Sociedad, and Betis. Like what you were saying, like we should, if things don't go crazy, we don't have major injuries, knock on wood and whatnot, we should be able to put the ball safely into the pier and that pier is finishing top four which and the way Sevilla are going they're free falling and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon then finishing top four that's the only thing I'm worried about yep. if we end up winning the Europa League that's a nice little add-on it's like an ice cream you get a little nice topping but I only hear about top yeah. four that's yeah, the only yeah. thing I care about. For sure. For Europa League, I will worry about that trophy when they're in the final. That's, I mean, and not to say that Barcelona deserves to be in the final, but I, I think emotionally, I mean, people know I'm pretty robotic anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to get up until a final until it is a final. So yeah, sorry, Zenadine Zidane, but uh, uh, there are finals that are real finals. And okay, <laughs> so final point here, speaking of finals, is 
The one big piece of transfer news, if you will, this week was Pablo Torre, who was an 18-year-old racing Santander midfielder. You know, created, of course, the arguments where nobody had heard of him a week ago, and now people are, are you know, talking him up and yada, yada, yada. Now, I had heard of him. It's it's a funny thing. A few weeks ago, I was going through when whenever Spain has their youth camps. Every few weeks, I'll notice which academy players, whether from the get the Cadet Oz, the U16s at Barca, the U18s, U19s, to see which ones have been selected to, the international, to their uh, national teams. And I did take notice a few months ago, or even maybe even up to a year ago, when Pablo Torre was with the U-17s, and now recently over in February, he was with the U-19s, and he winds up being that primary attacking midfield engine for that team, the U-19s, along with Alberto Marrero, who basically took Pedri's spot at Las Palmas as their left winger slash attacking midfield option. And for Torre, the reason why, again, that was the first time I kind of saw his name or kind of look for highlights of him back then because I was like, okay, the attacking midfielder for Spain's U19s isn't at Real Madrid, not at Barcelona, not at Sevilla, not at Real Betis, not at Real Sociedad, not at Athletic Club. He's not at any of like, even Valencia, Villarreal. He's not at a big first division club. He's at Racing Santander who play in the third division. Yes, they're historically a, a team because they draw from the Cantabria region. They do produce a lot of talent, but so often that talent is plucked away to Athletic Club, Atletico Madrid, or one of the other places, uh, or actually the Basque Country happens a ton too. And so they can't really hold on to their talent, and this one has. So 18 years old, second year playing for Racing Santander's first team. This year, six goals, seven assists, and 23 appearances. 13 goal contributions are good for second in the third division, the total third division. Some of those have come from free kicks. Some of the rest come from open play. And so having watched some of those highlights, having seen where other managers and coaches do rank him right now in comparison to his peers, the 5 million euro fee that Barca paid for him that could reach up to 20 million looks like a really, really, really good deal. It's a contract till 2026 and a release clause of 100 million. And some of the other notes here that, yeah, you raise your eyebrows because apparently he does share an agent with Xavi and Xavi himself called him. So I will say that not every... Barca B signee gets a call from Xavi. I can almost guarantee that not everyone is told where they're going to fit in the in the midfield. I mean, in the first team picture in the midfield of Xavi's, you know, the great Barcelona midfield in the future. He's also the son of Esteban Torre. So he is a second or third generation footballer. He played for Racing Santander throughout the 90s, including multiple years up in the Liga. And all of those things put together, right? Son of a professional footballer who played in La Liga. Xavi having understood and knows the player for a little bit of a while, sharing an agent, all that stuff. And then Barcelona going out as aggressively as they did, knowing that Real Madrid also wanted his signature. This could this kid could be a steal. That's all I'm going to say. I didn't speak as highly about Emery Demir. He's having a actually a what was quote unquote difficult season for an 18 year old in the Turkish division. But after making more appearances last year, 16 Emery Demir did. He's made six this year. So it is a concerning that he wasn't able to have that second season. And this happens from the ages of 16 to 20. You have no idea where players are going to be, right? You have no idea how many minutes he'll get for the first teams, where they belong. Now, if he comes to Barca B and lights the world up, he'll be in the first team or be getting those kind of appearances. And so for probably Tori, I'm not saying don't get excited, but I am saying that this is not just a sign I'm going to roll my eyes at. This is not just one of those 19-year-old Brazilians that came on huge commissions from Bartomeu. I know I'm always throwing shade there. No, sorry, I, I, I'm so, I feel so bad for Gustavo Mai, but that's just what happened. He was like 5 million plus... 10 millions of add-ons, and he winds up just not working out. But this kid could very well work out, but he's going to have to compete directly with Pedri and Gabi and Nico. So so good luck to him. Good luck. But all I'm saying is this, this could be a big talent as soon as next year. I think by 19 or 20, 
he's already going to be on Xavi's radar or he's going to be even looking elsewhere. I think that's how quickly it's going to be. He's not going to be at Barca B when he's 21 or 22. I think this kid's going to be either in the first team, not next season. He might make a few appearances, I think. But if he's not in the first team two years from now, he'll likely be going elsewhere. Got it. No, um, that that's a great assessment because I'll be honest, I had no idea who the hell this kid was before I saw the official announcement. And I... I know like you, you like to specialize in and like to look at that, like up and coming players. I, for my own sake, I, I, unless like they're on the radar of the first team, I don't pay much attention to them because if I was living in Barcelona, when I lived in Barcelona, I used to go with Julio to the mini study and we saw Adama and uh, Halilovic and Samper live. And you could tell, like we saw Samper and we were like, they're hyping this kid up. And, we like life. He's doesn't seem that great. Same with Halilovic, but with Adama, it's funny because we're like, obviously Adama's not going to be the best player in the world, but the one thing he does, which funny enough, like almost 10 years later is the one thing that keeps him in the elite divisions of football because he's still really good. At, and the things he's doing right now, which he's really good at, that's what he was doing in 2014 at yeah. the Mini Estadi. So are you going to get get a sense for that? Obviously, right, sadly, I'm not in Barcelona anymore. So with these young players, it happened to with, with Gavi and Nico. I read about Nico. I read about Gavi and whatnot. But I never actually saw them until preseason. And that's where I like to, like, take my emotions out and, like, look at the first touch, the their awareness and whatnot. And I love Gavi from the get-go. Nico, I've always said it. I, I'm not a big Nico guy. So, but I got to experience that for myself when I saw them in the preseason games. I was like, this Gabi kid, he's really freaking good. With Nico, I was like, eh, I don't know about him. But I, that's what's what I'm trying to get at is that I think that's it's gonna be the same with Paulo Torre for me. That and I'm sure for me and a lot of Barcelona fans as well because like I I had no idea who he is. He comes with this big bag of like he's really good or he could end up being something really special whether he ends up becoming something special or not that remains to be seen but he comes with high prices especially like what Xavi called him and whatnot so it'll be really interesting to see next season slowly how Xavi sprinkles him in with the first team and then the season after that like you said because right now there's a lot of competition in the midfield for Barcelona and then, although I know he's more of an attacking player, he's not, he's, he's not brought in to hopefully, potentially, maybe be a successor of Busquets in that deep midfielder role. But not saying him or Gabi Pedri will take up that Busquets role because they probably won't. But let's see how the summer develops. And... Again, I know he who must not be named, but Laporta talked today for Barcelona TV about like his one year at office and whatnot. He talked about a lot of things, but what I'm trying to get at is that they, obviously they 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 asked him about he who must not be well, named. I mean, he, listen, listen, he's only he's only Voldemort if he signs for Real Madrid. So exactly, you, could, but... you could still say his name now. He is not the Dark Wizard. He's not the Dark Lord just yet. He's, so, he's Tom yes. Riddle right no, now. No, no, <laughs> yes. Holland okay. is Holland's on the table. Go ahead, Rafa. Got it. Okay, so Holland. 
they they asked him about Holland, but then obviously Laporta didn't say anything. Yeah. But then they like try to like go around it and asked him like, hey, there's gonna be a lot of signings during this summer, and he kind of like said like, yeah, there's there's gonna be a lot of new players coming in. Like he didn't say names, but like like Christian saying Aspilicueta, Kessie, Masrawi, whatever. Hopefully Holland as well. And then he said like by proxy, if there's a lot of players coming in, there has to be a lot of players going out. And they asked him, like, kind of like trying to squeeze a little bit more about Haaland and how possibly if there would be a need to sell a big player that has market value, we all know who that player is, Frankie de Jong, who, if need be, hey, if this is the only way we can afford Haaland is by selling Frankie de Jong for 70, 80, 90. Obviously, they didn't say Frankie, but that's like the the, uh, the elephant in the room is Frankie de Jong because of his potential, his talent and whatnot. He's like right now the only player that we could possibly sell because we're not selling Pedri. But Frankie, you could maybe make a case that you could see him like Barcelona selling him if need be to fund Haaland. And Laporta, when asked, like, hey, if we would need to sell a big player, would that be the case? Would you do it? And he, like, kind of, like, hesitated a little bit and, like, kind of, like, went around it. But his answer to me was, like, wait a minute. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't, well, what's the word that I'm trying to use? Like, I didn't feel comfortable. Like, it, it kind of felt like he was saying he left all options open. Sure. So what I'm trying, I know I made this pick picture for Paulo Torre, but what I'm trying to get at is that if that ends up happening, if Frankie ends up leaving, how would that affect Paulo Torre's transition to the first team? Because what you said, I would imagine is thinking that Frankie is still with the team. Mm -hmm. But if he leaves, then that would mean for Paulo Torre, how would his adaptation to the first team be next season? Would he get more playing time? Would that be more distributed to Frank Kessier in that aspect? Or would that mean Pablo Torre, obviously, shifting everything around, not saying he would like take Busquets' role, Frankie's role, and whatnot. But would that mean he would get more playing time with the first team that sure. he would, obviously, if Frankie's not, if Frankie's here? So, obviously, just throwing that out there because it's what, March 7th? It could. Uh, yeah. It, it's 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 an option. And we're fine with it. Yep. It's going to happen, but let's keep our minds open. Yeah. All right. So we've given people a lot of homework as they've been sprinkling this along. Remember, it's Meske Un Podcast on YouTube. Follow Rafa. There's so much going on on his channel. Uh, check in. It, actually, just subscribe to it and hit the <laughs> notifications, just like on the YouTube channel for the Barcelona Podcast. It helps you get everything because the next podcast here on the channel is coming out on Friday in your ears. So if you want some other stuff, and there's so much content that's coming out in the rest of the week, tomorrow, Pablo Torre, there's a feature on him coming out because I do want to ask that question again in a long-form video format, and that is, will Barcelona have too many midfielders? In particular, too many midfielders between the ages of 18 and 20 because by my count, Xavi will have eight of them next season. Again, that doesn't count Frankie de Jong or Busquets or Kessie. So it could be eight players that Xavi between the ages of 18 and 20 who might be looking for minutes in the first team. We'll see how that plays out. But I do ask that question tomorrow, that feature on Pablo Torre signing. And then on Wednesday, there's a Caladocerai preview. Game on Thursday, podcast on 
Friday. So there is so much content coming out this week. And again, the uh, whenever you're not with me, I want you to be with Mescaloon Podcast over on his YouTube channel as well. So you can find us everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, at the Boston Pod. Patreon, thanks so much to the new patrons as well, for Steve for coming on and then, uh, last week as well, and then the Facebook group, the Barcelona Podcast, and we are on YouTube, obviously, at the Barcelona Podcast, that's where I have the match reviews. So, thanks so much for listening to the show. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon, of course, the Barca. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.